This message comes as part two of our latest series coming from the letter to the Hebrews that I've entitled, Pay Attention. Now, if you missed part one, you can go back and find that on our website, firstamarillo.org, or search First Baptist Church in your podcast app or however you like uh, listening to your audio. And you can follow along through part one up to this current message in our series called Pay Attention. Tonight we'll be in Hebrews chapter 2, so if you have a copy of Scripture in front of you or need to pause this and go get one, open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2. It's Christmas morning. The tip-tap of children's toes make it across the floor and all the way into the room where the presents are wrapped. Painstaking thought has been given to what these children need. I mean, parents have researched and considered and explored age-appropriate toys, toys that will last, gifts that will stand the test of time that children will actually play with, that won't get sold in a garage sale. They've given it every ounce of energy they had. They may have even waited in long holiday lines to get just the right one. They listened to the wishes whispered in Santa's ear to get the presents just right. And the children come in and the shock and amazement and excitement on their faces makes it all worthwhile. They tear into the wrapping paper, bust open the boxes. You better have scissors ready because those toys have been taped and tied and connected to their boxes with unrelenting strength. You would think that those housed the secrets of every state in the world But as you get them open, the toys begin to be played with. They're driven around the room. They're set up. They're built. They're put together. The piles of wrapping paper begin to mount. And somewhere along the day or somewhere along the morning, it's not long, there's a a lull. Maybe you wander out of the room for a few minutes to pick up some mess or to get a meal ready or to greet some family. And you find yourself back in the room with the children and the toys And all these new presents. And which one is it that the kids are playing with? What toy would they choose first to spend hours of attention and creative imagination playing with? Well, if you've ever been in that scenario, you may have guessed it. It's the box. It's funny how that happens, isn't it? Maybe you've been to a children's birthday party and every child in the room is huddled around he or she who's opening presents in the same situation. Wrapping paper flies, the mound mounds up, all the gift boxes are sitting around and every kid wants every toy that's being opened to be theirs. And somehow they're all riding in the cardboard rocket ship by the end of the party rather than using all the toys right in front of them. I know I can remember that exact thing happening with my own kids. In fact, I don't remember what the present was that was inside of the box that they played with the most, which kind of makes the point. You see, Hebrews is anxious that the people it's written to shouldn't make that mistake. You see, as we learned last week, these were Jewish Christians, as were most of the early Christians, but the letter seems to be written not in the earliest period of Christian life, but sometime a little bit later, between the year 50 and 70 AD. 
possibly even after that. And by that time, some of the Jewish Christians had gotten used to being part of a family of God that included Gentiles. They'd accepted a long time ago that God's purposes, after so many years of preparation, had now been unveiled in Jesus. The wrapping paper had come off the present. And the present, the gift in the center of the box that that all the other things had only prepared and pointed to, what had been unveiled now was Jesus himself, God's own unique son, the one that the first several verses of Hebrews calls the exact imprint of God's very being, the reflection of God's glory. And they could now move on from these earlier stages of God's purposes and gladly live out this new one that had broken in, this new thing that had dawned. But for a lot of these Jewish Christians, that wasn't so easy. Imagine that many of their peers and families and and those around them continued to put lots of pressure on them to go back to where they'd been before, to abandon this, this new movement that had started with its strange claims about a Messiah named Jesus, and to remember the importance and the significance of living under God's law or the law of Moses, that law that had been delivered by the angels. Wasn't it, after all, God who gave us these things? Jesus had come in splendid wrapping. The box is fun to play with. It can be a distraction. It can even be made using your imagination into anything that you want it to be. It was given to Moses and to, by angels after all. And that's why the long argument of Hebrews is an argument designed to show us that we can't go back to an earlier stage of God's purposes. These Hebrews, these Jewish Christians must press on into this new revelation in Jesus. It can be so tempting to get distracted by the wrapping paper, by the box that it comes in, by the details that we would rather spend our time and energy assessing and reassessing and mapping out and dating, when in reality, the fullest revelation, the exact imprint, God's own character has been unveiled to us. We've been given the greatest gift that you could imagine, the gift of God's own self in the person of the Son. So the letter to the Hebrews has been warning us against the mistake of playing with the box when we've been given so great a gift. And so chapter 2 began by reminding us that we must pay greater attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the message declared through the angels was valid and every transgression or disobedience received a just penalty, how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Having introduced Jesus in his preeminent, pre-existing condition, the letter now begins to draw for us the arc of salvation, the drama of God's redemption. It's been called the parabola of salvation, that curve that begins up high with Jesus existing with God and creating all things and coming down to become fully human before being exalted to the right hand of God. And in this chapter, what we get is 
a picture of the bottom of that ark, the, the lowest point of the parabola, where Jesus, for a little while, was made even lower than the angels for a purpose. It's a temptation that I see frequently that we make Jesus' existence as a human about one singular event, as in he was born only to die on the cross, that it was a transaction that God needed to make in order to resolve our sin problem, and there is truth to that. But the letter to the Hebrews reminds us that there is great importance in all of Jesus' humanity, his birth, his life, his example, his suffering, his passion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God the Father are all a part of the drama of salvation, the redemptive plan of God. And so we read in Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 8, Now in subjecting all things to them, the angels, God left nothing outside of their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels and is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Verse 11 continues, For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. Now I read that passage at length because I want to place before us three of the images that the writer of Hebrews is pulling together here in chapter 2 to help us to see Jesus, that he is a hero, that he is a liberator from slavery, and that he is a high priest. And he's pulling from each of these constellations of images and putting them in front of these Jewish Christians and, and really expanding the way that they would have thought of those things. Because how could it be and how would it be that the Messiah who came and suffered and died at the hands of men could be any of those things? They're so far-fetched from what they had imagined them to be, but the writer of the Hebrews is going to turn those upside down and help us to see that what might be thought of as embarrassing or a theological embarrassment, the suffering and death of Jesus, is actually of central importance for the priestly ministry of Jesus. 
And so if any of them may have preferred some kind of passionless angels over a suffering Jesus, they're now going to hear the strong reasons to reconsider that, to understand that Jesus, by his passion, by his suffering, and because of those things, because he dwells in the depths of humanity, experiences it in its fullness, can make us heirs of his salvation. And so chapter 2 begins by explaining the world as the way, in the way that it was created. That God creates angels and that he creates also human beings. And he quotes Psalm 8 to remind us that, that he has crowned human beings with glory and honor and subjected all things under their feet. They are this glorious creation that all things are subjected to. And as the argument builds and builds, the language used by the writer of Hebrews is all building to one point, the beginning there of verse 9. There are these things that you don't see. You don't see that the whole world is already subjected to humans the way that God designed it to be. You don't see that all things are under his control. And it can seem, as you well know, that the world is outside of God's control, that things are not the way they should be, that something is broken, not just at a surface level, but deep down in the core of creation that causes it to be so unraveled as our experience is. We don't see all things subjected to humans and to God in the way that they should be, but verse 9, but we do see Jesus. Jesus a name positioned at the very end of one big, long sentence, a whole technique just made to emphasize what this preacher wants to communicate, that we do see Jesus. He does the same thing on all eight occasions when he uses the name Jesus. In verse three, six, um, chapters 3, 6, 7, 10, 12, 13, every time, eight times, these long sentences culminating with this Profound word, the name given to the Son of God. We see Jesus. And now that he's placed Jesus firmly in view, he starts to shift back and forth between what can be known about Jesus by sight and what can only be known by faith, what we can see and what we have heard about him. And he's explaining why these things are so significant. That Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And we begin to see two core theological principles that even the earliest Christians understood. That Jesus was truly human. That is, he, he experienced and knew the depths of humanity, of all of our temptations and pain. And he was the true human. He was the example set for us that shows us what it means to be human in the way God designs us to be. And so in verse 10, we are told that it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, and bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, there are a lot of ways to describe suffering and death. There are a lot of ways to describe the brutality of what happens to Jesus that allows him and enables him 
to bring about salvation to humankind, but to look at that kind of a grotesque violence and to say it was fitting seems so strange. You see, the, the Greeks had heroes. They had champions, pioneers. That word can also be translated a, a founder, an author, a, a leader. They had examples of people who descended into the depths and, and took on feats of great strength in order to rescue people, the most famous of which they called Hercules. And myths like this, mythic figures, heroes like this, who championed the weak and rescued people, did a lot of things, but suffering and death were not among them. And so how odd in the midst of explaining to us that this is the exact imprint of God's glory, the, the perfect representation of God's character, we're told that it was fitting, it, it made sense, it was, it was correct according to God's character, that in bringing us to glory, the pioneer, the one who makes a path for us, should do so by suffering. It turns out that perfection isn't about being morally flawless or, or blameless, because we already know that Jesus is blameless. But what the writer is trying to tell us is that the completeness of Jesus' preparation, that his, his priestly ministry for us, requires suffering and death in order to identify with us and with humankind and, and with what it means to be human. And that anything less than this full understanding of the human condition that he acquires and is perfected in him through his suffering and death wouldn't have been enough. And so we're learning here in chapter 2 that part of Jesus' incarnation, his becoming flesh, was about the conditions of suffering and death that are appropriate to God's purpose. And that purpose is to lead many to glory. And what we find in Jesus is a picture of a God who is not ashamed to be identified with us. That his, uh, for a little while section is not an embarrassment to God or to Jesus or to the church, that we should look to his life and his humanity and the examples he sets for us and not be embarrassed that, that God himself should suffer or be crushed or be killed or be mocked and beaten, but look to that and understand that this is exactly what happens when God's love and righteousness and justice and compassion are made perfect in a broken creation. And that by enduring that shame and suffering, Jesus is portrayed as the one who in himself creates the path, is the, the pioneer for all who would follow after him. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. And Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. In January of this year, 2020, 78 families were given payment advances in India by a brick kiln owner of 30,000 rupees, so about $400 that they would need to repay with their work 
in his brick kiln. They were bust, co-opted, put into transportation and taken to the facility where their debts were manipulated in an effort to keep them trapped. Every day, the children and adults were forced to collect mud, pound it into bricks, dry and fire them in a kiln and stack them in this massive warehouse. Work started about three in the morning and ran until sundown. Each family had to make around 2,000 bricks a day. Children weren't allowed to attend school. No one at the site had access to health care, proper food, or sanitary bathrooms. The conditions got so bad, the owners stopped giving laborers any money or food, so they were slowly starving. He confiscated cell phones and brought a police officer by to intimidate them when they started demanding better treatment. It wasn't until May 24th, a few short days ago, that news of their entrapment had found enough family members and local journalists to catch the attention of workers with the International Justice Mission. They had been made modern-day slaves. When the rescue effort was concluded last month, 281 people, 64 of them children, were freed. One rescued gentleman sent a voice message to a rescue worker saying, if it were not for your help, I don't know that my family would have ever made it home. The second image we get of Jesus is one who rescues from slavery, a liberator, a rescuer, who frees those who all their lives, verse 15 says, were held in slavery by the fear of death. And they are held there, we are told, by the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. You see, Jesus is the one who bursts in and sets the captives free, who hears news of those who have been taken in bondage and comes to liberate them. He is the one who echoes the story of the Exodus and the Israelites who were freed from slavery, except he perfects that story because he not only rescues them from the oppressors, he rescues them from death itself by defeating it himself, by becoming all the way like us, He takes us to be all the way like him. And even more than a hero or a champion or pioneer or a liberator, Jesus, it says, is a high priest. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect. Verse 17 tells us that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. And so we begin to wed together these images that remind us of Jesus's unique identity, that he participates fully both in the life of God and in the life of humanity. He is the mediator, the one who makes peace between a defiant humanity and God. His purpose was to to serve as the redeemer, the one who comes from God and rescues humanity from death. These first hearers would have been well versed in the language of 
priesthood and what it means for Jesus to be a high priest, it wouldn't have needed a lot of explanation for them. More than likely, what's going on here is that these different images are being forced together as if almost to create a gasp by the audience and by the listener who first read this letter or sermon because they're discovering that we can no longer simply think of Jesus as a a hero without also remembering that he is the priest. And not just the priest presiding at the altar, but also the one who rescues us, the liberator. These images are coming together that Jesus liberates the captives, those who are held by the devil and the fear of death. Image upon image, piled on top of itself, many of which we don't get in fullness like this anywhere else but the letter to Hebrews. Many of these, especially this high priest language and the adjectives chosen here, that he is both a merciful and faithful high priest are language that we will see come to fruition in in fuller and fuller ways later on in this book. But here in chapter 2, this high priest image is crucial for reminding us that Jesus makes atonement. He brings back together that which had been torn apart. It's language that speaks about a priest who not only offers sacrifices for sins, but also makes intercession for those in need. And so the the readers share that, that image as they understand who Jesus is. He's the one who offers sacrifice for sin, the one who intercedes on our behalf. And the audience of this letter had been enduring suffering. They had known public abuse. They had been through persecution and imprisonment and the the confiscation of their property, as we'll learn later on. And even though none of them have yet been killed for their faith, that's not even too distant an idea. And so to them, Jesus ministers not just as the pioneer and the model who endured the cross and, and disregarded its shame, but also as the high priest who makes intercession for them from his place now up at the right hand of God. And each one of these images brings together an aspect of the character of God that we're told was fitting, was right, was accurate to convey to us who God is. So we're left to ask, what does it mean for us to move beyond the wrapping paper? to set aside the box that we receive it in and to begin to examine, apply, make use of this gift we've been given. The temptation is to allow other things to distract us, to let our attention be taken in other directions, to to details about how we receive this message or to things that we cannot yet know. But the scriptures keep pointing us back again and again to this large, grand narrative that God has unleashed an entirely new way to be human and set before us what that looks like. And we are to be conformed to that image because of the sacrifice he makes. Because of Jesus, we can now be made like him so that we might be with him forever. So we get this picture of the the lowness of Jesus' life. That for this little while, in those moments between his birth and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, we see in the Gospels Jesus' participation in human life, and it matters. 
It matters that Jesus is made perfect in the sense that suffering joins him completely and empathetically to our suffering human condition. And so Tom Long can write that through his pain, Jesus becomes a brother to every other human being. And this is a radical theological point. That when the gaze of the eternal Son of God encompasses a criminal on death row, when the glorified Son sees a homeless woman crawling into a cardboard box to keep from freezing in the night, when the Lord of all sees a man robbed of dignity and purpose by schizophrenia, or when the divine heir of all things sees a mother weeping over the death of her child or a man battling the last savage assault of cancer or the swollen body of a child's slowly starving death. He doesn't see a charity case or a pitiful victim or a hopeless cause. He sees a brother. He sees a sister. And he is not ashamed to call us Verse 11 says, his brothers and sisters. The the Son of God doesn't just shake his head in misery and say, I'll move on. Instead, he says, I'll go there too. And there is the beauty of a God who comes to us, who does what no other world religion has ever suggested God would do, to take the form of a man and to participate in humanity in order to rescue and redeem us. And because of that, he can look to your life in its most challenging moments, in its most miserable circumstances, in its deepest sufferings and wounds. He can look and say, I have been there too. He sees the one who feels worthless. He sees the one who feels oppressed. He sees the one who's hurting. He sees the one who's starving. And over and over again, his life and death and resurrection testify that he has been there too. And there is no part of sin and death that he cannot undo because he has been there too. So for all those who receive him, to those who believe in his name. He gives the right to become children of God. And he is not ashamed that we would be called brothers and sisters. Join with me as we pray. Father in heaven, We are humbled by the reality that when we were furthest from you, when we had wandered into the far country, you came to us. You come from your glory and make yourself into humanity that we might be rescued. You are our hero, a champion, a pioneer who lays out a path before us. You are our high priest who intercedes on our behalf. And so we look to you. And though we cannot see so much of your plan that we know, and though we cannot see so much of your future that awaits us, we do see Jesus. And we look to him. 
And we give you thanks that you have revealed yourself to us in this way, this most perfect word, this fitting revelation of God. And we ask that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we pay attention to who you are, it would transform who we are. Because we long, we long to be the people of God for today. And so we invite you to come and to transform our hearts. And we pray for those who might not yet know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.